0: all of us want to be happy how we imagine our happiness that differs from one another but it's already a lot that we have all in common that we want to be happy This program is made possible
1: by the members and donors to the show, and right now, during our summer fundraiser, you can help support this show and great climate change and sustainability organizations by donating to my climate ride and becoming a member of the show at the same time. When you do both, you can receive a free Best of the Left t-shirt made of recycled materials as a thank you gift. Just go to bestoftheleft.com and click the Summer Fundraiser banner for all the details. And now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Ted talks, The Majority Report, A Progressive Faith Sermon with Dr. Roger Ray, Figure One by the University of California, and Backstory.
2: What keeps us healthy and happy as we go through life? If you were going to invest now in your future best self, where would you put your time and your energy? There was a recent survey of millennials asking them what their most important life goals were. And over 80% said that a major life goal for them was to get rich. And another 50% of those same young adults said that another major life goal was to become famous. (laughs) And we're constantly told to lean in to work, to push harder, (laughs) and achieve more. We're given the impression that these are the things that we need to go after in order to have a good life. Pictures of entire lives, of the choices that people make and how those choices work out for them, those pictures are almost impossible to get. Most of what we know about human life, we know from asking people to remember the past. And as we know, hindsight is anything but 2020. We forget vast amounts of what happens to us in life. And sometimes memory is downright creative. But what if we could watch entire lives as they unfold through time? What if we could study people from the time that they were teenagers all the way into old age to see what really keeps people happy and healthy? We did that. The Harvard study of adult development may be the longest study of adult life that's ever been done. For 75 years, we've tracked the lives of 724 men, year after year, asking about their work, their home lives, their health, and of course, asking all along the way without knowing how their life stories were going to turn out. Studies like this are exceedingly rare. Almost all projects of this kind fall apart within a decade because too many people drop out of the study or funding for the research dries up or the researchers get distracted or they die and nobody moves the ball further down the field. But through a combination of luck and the persistence of several generations of researchers, this study has survived. About 60 of our original 724 men are still alive, still participating in the study, most of them in their 90s. And we are now beginning to study the more than 2,000 children of these men. And I'm the fourth director of the study. (laughs) Since 1938, we've tracked the lives of two groups of men, the first group started in the study when they were sophomores at Harvard College. They all finished college during World War II, and then most went off to serve in the war. And the second group that we followed was a group of boys from Boston's poorest neighborhoods, boys who were chosen for the study specifically because they were from some of the most troubled and disadvantaged families in the Boston of the 1930s. Most lived in tenements many without hot and cold running water. When they entered the study, all of these teenagers were interviewed, they were given medical exams. We went to their homes and we interviewed their parents. And then these teenagers grew up into adults who entered all walks of life. They became factory workers and lawyers and bricklayers and doctors. One president of the United States, Some developed alcoholism. A few developed schizophrenia. Some climbed the social ladder from the bottom all the way to the very top. And some made that journey in the opposite direction. The founders of this study would never, in their wildest dreams, have imagined that I would be standing here today, 75 years later, telling you that the study still continues. Every two years, our patient and dedicated research staff calls up our men and asks them if we can send them yet one more set of questions about their lives. Many of the inner-city Boston men ask us, why do you keep wanting to study me? My life just isn't that interesting. The Harvard men never ask that question. (laughs) get the clearest picture of these lives. We don't just send them questionnaires. We interview them in their living rooms. We get their medical records from their doctors. We draw their blood. We scan their brains. We talk to their children. We videotape them talking with their wives about their deepest concerns. And when, about a decade ago, we finally asked the wives if they would join us as members of the study, many of the women said, you know, it's about time. So what have we learned? What are the lessons that come from the tens of thousands of pages of information that we've generated on these lives? Well, the lessons aren't about wealth or fame or working harder and harder. The clearest message that we get from this 75-year study is this. Good relationships keep us happier and healthier. Period. We've learned three big lessons about relationships. The first is that social connections are really good for us, and that loneliness kills. It turns out that people who are more socially connected to family, to friends, to community, are happier, they're physically healthier, and they live longer than people who are less well-connected. And the experience of loneliness turns out to be toxic. People who are more isolated than they want to be from others find that they are less happy, their health declines earlier in midlife, their brain functioning declines sooner, and they live shorter lives than people who are not lonely. And the sad fact is that at any given time, more than one in five Americans will report that they're lonely. And we know that you can be lonely in a crowd and you can be lonely in a marriage. So the second big lesson that we learned is that it's not just the number of friends you have and it's not whether or not you're in a committed relationship, but it's the quality of your close relationships that matters. It turns out that living in the midst of conflict is really bad for our health. High-conflict marriages, for example, without much affection turn out to be very bad for our health, perhaps worse than getting divorced. And living in the midst of good, warm relationships is protective. Once we had followed our men all the way into their 80s, we wanted to look back at them at midlife and to see if we could predict who was going to grow into a happy, healthy octogenarian and who wasn't. And when we gathered together everything we knew about them at age 50... It wasn't their middle-aged cholesterol levels that predicted how they were going to grow old. It was how satisfied they were in their relationships. The people who were the most satisfied in their relationships at age 50 were the healthiest at age 80. And good, close relationships seem to buffer us from some of the slings and arrows of getting old. Our most happily partnered men and women Reported in their 80s that on the days when they had more physical pain, their moods stayed just as happy. But the people who were in unhappy relationships, on the days when they reported more physical pain, it was magnified by more emotional pain. And the third big lesson that we learn about relationships and our health is that good relationships don't just protect our bodies, they protect our brains. It turns out That being in a securely attached relationship to another person in your 80s is protective. That the people who are in relationships where they really feel they can count on the other person in times of need, those people's memories stay sharper longer. And the people in relationships where they feel they really can't count on the other one, those are the people who experience earlier memory decline. And those good relationships, they don't have to be smooth all the time. Some of our octogenarian couples could bicker with each other day in and day out. But as long as they felt that they could really count on the other when the going got tough, those arguments didn't take a toll on their memories. So this message that good, close relationships are good for our health and well-being This is wisdom that's as old as the hills. Why is this so hard to get and so easy to ignore? Well, we're human. What we'd really like is a quick fix, something we can get that'll make our lives good and keep them that way. Relationships are messy and they're complicated, and the the hard work of tending to family and friends, that's not sexy or glamorous. It's also lifelong. It never ends. The people in our 75-year study who were the happiest in retirement were the people who had actively worked to replace workmates with new playmates. Just like the millennials in that recent survey, many of our men, when they were starting out as young adults, really believed that fame and wealth and high achievement were what they needed to go after to have a good life. But over and over, over these 75 years, our study has shown that the people who fared the best were the people who leaned into relationships with family, with friends, with community. So what about you? Let's say you're 25 or you're 40 or you're 60. What might leaning into relationships even look like? Well, the possibilities are practically endless, It might be something as simple as replacing screen time with people time or livening up a stale relationship by doing something new together, long walks or date nights, or reaching out to that family member who you haven't spoken to in years because those all-too-common family feuds take a terrible toll on the people who hold the grudges. I'd like to close with a quote from Mark Twain. More than a century ago, he was looking back on his life and he wrote this. There isn't time, so brief is life, for bickerings, apologies, heartburnings, callings to account. There is only time for loving and but an instant, so to speak, for that. The good life is built with good relationships
3: Does inequality drive unhappiness? And what are the most happy and unhappy countries in the world? So I'm not sure everybody knows this, but on March 20th, the United Nations is going to be celebrating World Happiness Day. Now, I absolutely did not know that this existed. It's kind of cool. And there's a piece in Good by Jordan Krishola breaking down some really important research That correlates with World Happiness Day because the World Happiness Report, which is a report released on the state of happiness in the world, comes out the same month as this celebration. Now, let's start off by noting who the happiest countries in the world are. Happiest countries are Denmark. That's number one. Happiest people anywhere. That's followed by Switzerland, Iceland, Norway, and Finland dominating the top five. Let's go to the most unhappy places. And of course, depressingly, this isn't really surprising. Um, Benin, Afghanistan, Togo, Syria, and Burundi are at the bottom. And what happened in this year's report is they included factors having specifically to do with income inequality. And it found that along with all the other measures that you can correlate with happiness, income inequality directly led to less healthy and happy populations for obvious economic reasons, but also for psychological ones. So we can see in this World Happiness Report that inequality, again, is not only a material crisis and a moral problem, it's also a psychological one. Uh, Daniel Goleman has written about how wealth inequality can exacerbate a lack of empathy. There's literature on wealth inequality and lack of mental health. And we see it playing out in these large measurements. Now, obviously, measuring something as subjective as happiness is tricky, but you can trust people's reporting a fair amount on these things, apparently, because they're getting used uh, more, and there are even now several governments in the world that have ministries dedicated to happiness. So more inequality more unhappiness.
4: I'm on a
1: Today's episode is sponsored by the Dollar Shave Club. The DollarShaveClub.com delivers amazing razors right to your door for a third of the price of what the greedy razor corporations charge, which means you can shave with a fresh blade anytime you want. They also have great shaving products like Dr. Carver's Shave Butter. This shave butter isn't your average shaving cream. It's a unique conditioning formula with high quality natural ingredients, leaving your skin unbelievably soft and smooth. When you use their executive razor with their Dr. Carper's shave butter, the blade just gently glides for the smoothest shave ever. Now's a great time to join Dollar Shave Club. New members who buy a tube of shave butter get a month of their executive razor blades for free. Take advantage of this special offer today. It's available by going to dollarshaveclub.com That's dollarshaveclub.com slash best.
5: When I was a grad grad student at Vanderbilt, I took a field placement one semester in a mental health center in Bowling Green, Kentucky to get supervised experience in counseling. And a young psychologist on the staff there had a bumper sticker on his car that read, Happiness is an inside job. And I spent weeks trying to figure out what that meant. I assumed there was some obscure psychological insight, some tongue-in-cheek message that I just couldn't figure out. So I finally just gave up and asked him, and and the actual meaning was not obscure at all. In fact, it was so basic it should have been obvious. He said, after one year of working in construction, through the bitter cold of winter and the heat of summer, I was inspired to go back to college so I could have a job where I worked inside. It was probably a meaningless exchange for him, but I remember it from 30 years ago because for me it was like a moment with a Zen master. I grew up in rural Kentucky surrounded by tenant farmers and the crushing poverty of the majority of those who were trying to scratch out a living out of what was actually fairly poor agricultural land. When I hauled hay or housed tobacco, It was for extra spending money. For them, it was survival. I've milked cows by hand, but I did it as a novelty. They did it to keep from starving to death. Though my parents could not afford to send me to college, and in fact, the cultural assumption that I was going to go to college was just a part of the mythology of the family. So even though I didn't grow up in a family that could afford it, I grew up in a family where there was a sense of moral oughtness and obligation, which set you out a little bit ahead of the rest of the crowd. Now, I've done hard manual labor as a kid on the farm, and as an adult, I've helped to build houses in the Andes and Ecuador and in the heat of Managua, Nicaragua. I remember one day after carrying concrete block and mixing mortar on the ground with a shovel. In Central America, where electricity is, is rare at building sites, they dig a little depression in the ground, pour in sand, and then some cement, and then they dump in water. And a couple of guys take shovels and turn it and turn it and you just walk around it in a circle until you get that soupy mix of mortar just right, and then you shovel it into 10-gallon buckets, put it on your shoulder, and carry it up to the building site. My friend Bill Ringo that I go diving with, who is uh, a decade older than I am, was down there with me one one time, and as we were struggling at the end of the day to get back to our hotel room, I said, Bill, are you Okay. And he just stopped and looked at me and said, if I hurt just this much more, I would sit down right here and start crying like a little girl. (laughs) But it was for us five days of manual labor in what Bill now fondly refers to as Gandhi camp. (laughs) After five days, we were on our way back to the United States and sitting uh, in an airplane, making our plans for our next scuba diving trip. My life's not charmed. I've had some real tough blows to endure, and I've had to put in some pretty long hours of demanding work. But with rare exception, I work indoors. I take a lunch break. I always have access to both health care and a safe place to sleep, running water, and flushing toilets. I've been in parts of the world where you didn't have those things just enough to know that if you hate cleaning your toilets, you should try it without them for a little while. And you discover what a what an honor it is to have toilets to clean. But more than that, I was born into the dominant race of the dominant gender in the dominant nation of the world. There is no predictor of success in life that is greater than being born white, male, heterosexual, and Protestant in North America. It is fair for everyone in the world to compete for the same finish line in a race, as long as they have the same starting line. But white men in America get a solid head start long before minorities or women ever get to start the race. White privilege is not just a thing, it's an almost undefeatable thing, even while it defies definition and detection. We're sometimes just mystified by the complaints of minorities because from the perspective, particularly the perspective of a white male in the middle class, it looks like we live in a universe where everything is equal and maybe even the scale is tipped in the favor of minorities. But if you're on the other side of the fence, and, and even with the complaints that we've had from the University of Missouri lately from minority students, there are so many people that just don't see it, just don't understand and naturally. They found an African-American student here at MSU to to cry out that it was an unfair complaint. And that is just how weird white privilege is. It is sometimes so hard to see that even minorities refuse to accept its presence. For those of you who, like me, watched both of the uh, Republican debates on TV that have taken place so far, the mere fact that white male millionaires can look into a camera and say with a straight face that salaries in America are too high when, when the greatest challenge to the continued existence of our country as a, a capitalist democracy is income disparity. And they're even able to say income disparity is the largest single issue And still look straight into a camera and say, no, I don't favor a raise in the minimum wage. Wages in America are too high and have to be lowered for us to be competitive. If you've ever doubted white privilege, just play that clip again. They can pay lip service to the fact that wage disparity is destroying our country, but their only solution to it when asked point blank is to make it even worse. If I may mix my literary genres, images, just a bit, they sounded to me very much like an odd combination of Voldemort and Ebenezer Scrooge. (laughs) I don't want to make Ben Carson a running theme in my preaching for the next several months, but as the minority on the stage who said that the United States went from its birth to being the dominant economic force in the world in one century because, he said, of the positive economic environment. A black man saying that our country's first hundred years saw an economic rise because of the positive economic environment in what most historians call slavery or as uh, I think uh, Stephen Colbert called uh, our uncompensated intern program that we <laughs> ran in the United States for a couple of hundred years. But folks, as we near our Thanksgiving observance, I would like to add one more thing to our awareness of white privilege in America. As morally bankrupt as the treatment of European settlers was of their African slaves, and as horrible as the ethnic cleansing of Native Americans was, and the historical aspect that usually goes untold is the fact that the takeover of North America from tens of millions of Native Americans who were living here was largely because of the diseases that we brought from Europe. So unprepared to face the illnesses that most Europeans had learned to survive were the Native tribes, that entire villages of Native Americans simply collapsed under the weight of their casualty count. There were villages where people died so fast in such numbers that they didn't even bury their dead. They abandoned their villages. And along with it, a lot of why we know so little about Native American spirituality is that the death toll was so high and so fast that they abandoned their uh, spiritual artifacts, and many of their rituals because they believed their gods had turned against them. The reason why there are so many cities in America with field as their last name, there's more than 40 springfields in the United States, a lot of Mansfield, Fairfield, Greenfield, and so on, is because as the settlers moved west, they simply found fields that had been abandoned. They had been cleared, and if you think about taking a walk at the nature center and thinking, what if this was my farm? What would it take with a horse and an axe and a saw to clear this and turn it into agricultural land? Many Indian fields, agricultural fields, were simply discovered because on our little wooden ships from Europe, we brought measles, scarlet fever, typhoid, typhus, influenza, Pertussis, whooping cough, tuberculosis, cholera, diphtheria, chicken pox, as well as a number of sexually transmitted diseases that the native population simply was not prepared to encounter. The arrival of large numbers of Europeans spelled near extinction for the American Indians, but it presented those settlers with vast resources of cleared farmland and a leg up on the rest of the world that was braced for an industrial revolution. So no one, no one in modern America can claim to be a self-made person without acknowledging that our forebears inherited a continent from Native Americans and an infrastructure due in large part to the uncompensated labor of African slaves and barely compensated labor of Chinese road workers – once the Civil War was over and slavery was wiped out, all the slave ships simply started going to Asia and capturing Chinese. To be shanghai was uh, a term that was brought up that they would go to uh, rural areas of China, tell them that they had jobs for them in Shanghai, and they would end up in California, that they were literally stolen from their families and put to work building America's railroads. And for all of the talk about building a wall between us and Mexico, the same people screaming for a wall now will be wanting to tear it down when they find out what our fruits and vegetables would cost with three-digit inflation year after year. No one who owns a farm... No one who owns a hotel, no one who owns a restaurant really wants to endure the spike in labor prices that would result if we actually had a wall between us and Mexico, not to mention if we followed through with the deportation of millions upon millions of laborers. If wealth were actually predicated on hard work and frugality, the richest people in the world would not live in Silicon Valley. They would be sub-Saharan women who carry water on their heads and firewood on their backs day after day after day until they die. No one here in this room ever killed an Indian. No one here ever owned a slave. But everyone here has dramatically benefited from the theft of land from the Indians and the labor of African slaves. At this point, we are all connected. No one is an island, and no one can take credit for their success as a standalone event. Now, you can get a head start in a race and still lose it. it, it we do have to engage in our own success. But no one can claim that whatever they have, they have by virtue of their own hard work. Therefore, we have a very basic, moral, logical, just obligation to, to pay it forward to the next generation, to the next person who is trying to make it. Many of us here did not come from wealthy families who sent us to college. I not only worked and put myself through college, but in the latter years of my graduate school, my parents had fallen on economic hard times, and I had to help support them. The difference was, in the 1980s, you could do that. It could be done. Now it is not possible to do it. That era of American history in which a poor white guy from rural America could end up going to Harvard is just about over. There very rare exceptions that people can emerge from that kind of poverty and have a shot at that kind of education. So with gratitude in our hearts for the opportunities that we have been given for the nation and the culture which we inherited, we owe it to the next generation to make it possible for them to work their way through college, to earn enough from a job, to eventually be able to buy a house, to save for retirement, and to choose to have two or three kids if their nerves can handle it. The perspective of selfishness that has become rampant in our nation is not just a failure of capitalism. It is a moral failing, a spiritual vacuum in which we really need to infuse a more responsible and mature appreciation with hearts filled with thanksgiving in order to give the people that come after us a fair shot at life. Power and greed have become the unnamed sacraments of our society, but that's not who we are. That's not who we choose to be, and that certainly is not what makes this or any other nation great. That is what made feudal Europe such an economic disaster that people wanted to flee to settle the new world. We can do better, and there is no time like the present to get started.
6: One of the hardest questions when you think about the evolution of the human species from the standard framework of evolution, which really is about individual survival, competing, getting your genes to the next generation. One of the hardest questions within that framework is why are people so frequently and routinely good and generous and sacrificing, right? And, you know, most people think that Darwin had this idea of survival of the fittest, that really it's the most ruthless and bloodthirsty who really thrive and survive. That is not Darwin's view of human evolution at all. He really felt that sympathy is the strongest instinct that humans have. Communities that have the most sympathetic members will flourish and raise the greatest number of offsprings. That notion of Darwin's led to this sense that Out of the vulnerability of our offspring emerged, first of all, social structures like cooperative caregiving, and then also physiological systems shaped by evolution to help us take care of the carriers of our genes, our our offspring. We have learned from neuroscience down at UCLA that if you feel physical pain, a part of your brain lights up. And if I see you have that physical pain, the same part of my brain lights up. It's as if, We're wired to have the same experience of other people. Empathy is this really complicated task. It really engages the frontal lobes, these newer regions of the cortex that are involved in more complex symbolic processes like language and imagining the future. Because empathy requires that you think there's someone else out there who has feelings and thoughts that may be different from mine. That's a really complicated cognitive achievement. In my lab, the Berkeley Social Interaction Lab, we showed images of prototypical suffering to our participants. They trigger massively powerful reactions of compassion, and what we found in the brain is that a very old part of the brain, called the periaqueductal gray, which is common to mammals when they take care of things, lights up when you feel compassion. So that tells us compassion is really old in the nervous system, as Darwin speculated. My students and I got really interested in social class. What does it do to the human mind? Our lab and other labs are interested in something called the vagus nerve. It's the longest bundle of nerves in the human nervous system. In our research, compassion, the feeling of caring for someone in need, activates the vagus nerve. Lower-class individuals, if we show them images of suffering, they have a vagus nerve response. You don't see that in, in upper-class individuals. It literally is a compassion deficit that's produced by lots of wealth. Next set of studies on charity, who gives? Economic analyses would say, if I have a lot of money, it should be easy to give. If I have 900 bucks in my bank account, giving away monies, it really matters. You know, It matters what you put in your fridge. And in spite of that, what we find is lower-class individuals give more. And this is replicated in studies of philanthropy. You know, one of the things that this science tells us is there is enormous strength in these poorer communities of generosity and empathy that, you know, many people in more privileged circumstances miss. It's it's strong community. Yeah, you know. 60% of what we do is really about maximizing an individual's personal gratification and desire, just the classic survival of the most competitive. But 40% of the time, we're really doing things for other people. And we sacrifice, and we risk exploitation, and we still do it. And not only that, but... It it actually becomes personally fulfilling and inspiring to engage in that work. We find these secondary delights in in acting on behalf of others. And I think that it really requires that we have to redefine human self-interest. You know, the great ethical traditions have always been encouraging this. And now we're seeing the science say, yeah, the brain really cares about other people.
7: to begin today with a big debate over a tiny mark. A period? Or maybe a comma? It's found in the Declaration of Independence, the sort of thing scholars love to argue about.
8: I don't uh, buy the, the diacritical marks explanation as an explanation for why those dashes
7: are there in both the... The abandonment of heavy capitalization... The rational use of italics and caps and small caps. I'm not sure he really distinguishes between a
9: period and a dash, for instance. Oh well,
7: well, now, if you have no idea what any of that means, neither do we. But that's okay. We sent reporter Jessica Smith to cover a recent conference at the National Archives in Washington, D.C. called Punctuating Happiness. And we asked her to help us unpack this controversy.
10: Yeah, Peter, it was very dense. And for a non-academic like me, it was very intimidating. And I will admit to you that for the first hour or so I sat in the back googling terms like diacritical mark and syllogism, <laughs> just so like try and follow the discussion. But um, wow. you know, when I calmed down, it started to come into focus, and the question they were debating was pretty clear. The question was, is there a comma or a period after the phrase pursuit of happiness? A comma
7: or a period. It's not an easy question to answer actually. The Declaration's original parchment is really faded. All you see in that spot now is a smudge The most common reproduction of the Declaration, what you see on souvenir mugs and in textbooks, shows a period. But that version was copied from an engraving of the original made in 1823.
8: And, Peter, it doesn't help that Thomas Jefferson didn't include a period in any of his drafts of the Declaration, sometimes used a comma, sometimes a semicolon. And so, all these scholars were packed into this conference at the National Archives to settle the issue. They fell into two camps— Let's call them Team Comma and Team Dot.
10: So you're in the dot camp.
8: I'm pro dot.
10: (laughs) So that is Woody Halton. We can call him Team Dot. (laughs) He teaches history at the University of South Carolina.
8: What I do when I see a period, I breathe. And it's while you're breathing, you're sort of (sighs) inhaling that last thought. And so I'm pro dot because I think it will cause people to pause When they read that key phrase, which certainly is my personal favorite phrase, and I think it is for most Americans, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so there's actually, I think, some danger in removing that dot.
10: Team Comma was led by Danielle Allen. She's a scholar at Harvard University and her research into the punctuation question set off the whole debate. And she was the driving force behind this whole conference. So during the conference, she shared this story about why to her the comma is so important.
4: I stood behind a group of high school kids reading out a text of the Declaration that had this period in it. And they got to that, you know, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And they said, yes. And they turned around on their heels and they walked away. They didn't finish reading the sentence.
10: Alan's point is that if Thomas Jefferson didn't use a period and he used a comma instead, that means he wanted us to keep on reading. He wanted us to read the entire sentence, including what comes after Pursuit of Happiness, in order to get the full meaning of the sentence. But here's the problem. Most people don't know what comes next. I had no idea
4: until this conference. Uh, Do you guys?
7: Yeah, I should. (laughs)
4: <laughs> I'll let Alan fill you in. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, driving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles, and organizing its powers in such form, as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness.
8: Well, I can understand why those kids stop.
10: (laughs) Yes, it's really, really long.
8: Now, you might be saying to yourself, and you probably are, why does this matter? What does this sentence have to do with my happiness?
10: (laughs) But it matters. And Alan says that when you read the whole sentence, the logic changes. Um, She says ideas like laying a foundation of new government pop out. And
4: she elaborates a bit on this when I spoke to her after the conference. My reading returns focus on the responsibility of citizens to take responsibility for their government and to see that that responsibility involves balancing individual rights with collective safety and happiness.
8: In other words, the pursuit of happiness isn't just about your individual happiness. Alan's arguing that her comma binds the pursuit of happiness to the whole nation through choosing the government.
7: The debate in the end isn't so much about the smudge itself. It's about how Americans ought to read the words around it
8: Think about the waste of time Watch your mother your days everybody loves a high-
1: Today's episode is sponsored by Blue Apron. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. They set the highest quality standards for the community of artisanal suppliers and family-run farms so you know that you get the best ingredients, and because Blue Apron ships the exact amount of each ingredient required for a recipe, they are helping reduce food waste. Cooking together builds strong family bonds, and we should all have just heard how important those are. Research shows that Blue Apron families cook nearly three times more often, so if you need a little extra motivation to get to work in the kitchen, then Blue Apron may be the investment that goes well beyond the food on the plate. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash best. You are going to love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash best. Blue apron, a better way to cook. Think
2: about the waste design. Watching mother the nature. Everybody loves a
3: happy.
11: Don't you just love a happy hand? Oh yeah,
7: so do I. And all you love will shine.
0: There's something you know about me, something very personal. And there's something I know about every one of you that's very central to your concerns. There's something that we know about everyone we meet anywhere in the world on the street that is the very mainspring of whatever they do and whatever they put up with. And that is that all of us want to be happy. In this we are all together. How we imagine our happiness, that differs from one another. But it's already a lot that we have all in common, that we want to be happy. Now, my topic is gratefulness. How is the connection between happiness and gratefulness? Many people would say, well, that's very easy. When you are happy, you are grateful. But think again. Is it really the happy people that are grateful? We all know quite a number of people who have everything that it would take to be happy, And they are not happy because they want something else, or they want more of the same. And we all know people who have lots of misfortune, misfortune that we ourselves would not want to have. And they are deeply happy. They radiate happiness. We are surprised. Why? Because they are grateful. So it is not Happiness that makes us grateful. It's gratefulness that makes us happy. If you think it's happiness that makes you grateful, think again. It's gratefulness that makes you happy. Now, we can ask, what really do we mean by gratefulness? And how does it work? I appeal to your own experience. We all know from experience how it goes. We experience something that's valuable to us. Something's given to us that's valuable to us. And it's really given. These two things have to come together. We have to, it has to be something valuable and it's a real gift. You haven't bought it, you haven't earned it, you haven't traded it in, you haven't worked for it, it's just given to you. And when these two things come together, something that's really valuable to me, and I realize it's freely given, then gratefulness spontaneously rises in my heart, happiness spontaneously rises in my heart. That's how gratefulness happens. Now, the... Key to all this is that we cannot only experience this once in a while. We cannot only have grateful experiences. We can be people who live gratefully. Grateful living, that is the thing. And how can we live gratefully? By Experiencing by becoming aware that every moment is a given moment, as we say. It's a gift. You haven't earned it. You haven't brought it about in any way. You have You have no way of assuring that there will be another moment given to you. And yet, that's the most valuable thing that can ever be given to us. This moment with all the opportunity that it contains. If we didn't have this present moment, we wouldn't have any opportunity to do anything or experience anything. And this moment is a gift. It's a given moment, as we say. Now, we say The gift within this gift is really the opportunity. What you're really grateful for is the opportunity, not the thing that is given to you, because if that thing were somewhere else and you didn't have the opportunity to enjoy it, to do something with it, you wouldn't be grateful for it. Opportunity is the gift within every gift. And we have this saying, opportunity knocks only once. Well, think again. Every moment is a new gift, over and over again. And if you miss the opportunity of this moment, another moment is given to us, and another moment. We can avail ourselves of this opportunity, or we can miss it. And if we avail ourselves of the opportunity, it is the key to happiness. We hold the master key to our happiness in our own hands. Moment by moment, we can be grateful for this gift. Does that mean that we can be grateful for everything? Certainly not. We cannot be grateful for violence, for war, for oppression, for exploitation. On the personal level, we cannot be grateful for the loss of a friend, for unfaithfulness, for bereavement. But I didn't say we can be grateful for everything. I said we can be grateful in every given moment, for the opportunity. And even when we are confronted with something that is terribly difficult, we can rise to this occasion and respond to the opportunity that is given to us. It isn't as bad as it might seem. Actually, when you look at it and and experience it, you find that most of the time what is given to us is opportunity to enjoy. And we only miss it because we are rushing through life and we are not stopping to see the opportunity. But once in a while, something very difficult is given to us. And when this difficult thing occurs to us, it's a challenge to rise to that opportunity. And we can rise to it... By learning something, which is sometimes painful, learning patience, for instance. We have been told that the road to peace is not a sprint, but is more like a marathon. That takes patience. That's difficult. Uh, It may be to stand up for your opinion, to stand up for your conviction. That's an opportunity that is given to us to learn, to suffer, to stand up. All these opportunities are given to us. But they are opportunities and those who avail themselves of those opportunities are the ones that we admire. They make something out of life. And those who fail uh, get another opportunity. We always get another opportunity. That's the wonderful richness of life. So, how can we find a method... That will harness this. How can each one of us find a method for living gratefully? Not just once in a while being grateful, but moment by moment to be grateful. How can we do it? It's a very simple method. It's so simple that uh, it's actually what we were told as children when we learned to cross the street. Stop, look, go. That's all. But how often do we stop? We rush through life. We don't stop. We miss the opportunity because we don't stop. We have to stop. We have to get quiet. And we have to build stop signs into our lives. When I was uh, in Africa some years ago and then came back, I noticed water In Africa, where I was, I didn't have drinkable water. Every time I turned on the faucet, I was overwhelmed. Every time I clicked on the light, I was so grateful. It made me so happy. But after a while, this wears off. So I put little stickers on the light, on the light switch and on the water faucet. And every time I turned on, water. So you leave it up to your own imagination, you can find whatever works best for you, but you need stop science in your life. And when you stop, then the next thing is to look. You look, you open your eyes, you open your ears, you open your nose, you open all your senses for this wonderful richness that is given to us. If there's no end to it, that, that is what life is all about. To enjoy, to enjoy what is given to us. But then we can also open our hearts, our hearts for the opportunities. For the opportunities also to help others, to make others happy because nothing makes us more happy than when all, all of us are happy. And when we open our hearts to the opportunities... The opportunities invite us to do something. And that is the third. Stop, look, and then go and really do something. And what we can do is whatever life offers to you in that present moment, mostly it's the opportunity enjoy. Sometimes it's something more difficult, but whatever it is, if you take this opportunity, go with it. We are creative. That those are the creative people, and that little stop, look, go is such a potent seed that it can revolutionize our world, because uh, we need. We are at the, at the present moment in the middle of a change of consciousness, and you will be surprised if you. I'm always surprised when I hear how many times this word gratefulness and gratitude comes up. Everywhere you find it, a grateful airline, a restaurant gratefulness, a cafe gratefulness, a wine that is gratefulness. Yes, I've even come across a toilet paper that's brand is called Thank You. (laughs) There's a wave of gratefulness because people are becoming aware how important this is and how this can change our world. It can change our world in immensely important ways. Because if you're grateful, you're not fearful. And if you're not fearful, you're not violent. If you're grateful, you act out of a sense of enough. And not of a sense of scarcity, and you are willing to share. If you are grateful, you are enjoying the differences between people, and you are respectful to everybody, and that changes this power pyramid under which we live. And it doesn't make for equality, but it makes for equal respect, and that is the important thing. The future of the world will be a network, not a pyramid, not a pyramid turned upside down. The revolution of which I'm speaking is a nonviolent revolution, and it's so revolutionary that it even revolutionizes the very concept of a revolution. Because the normal revolution is one where the power pyramid is turned upside down and those who were on, on the bottom are now on the top and are doing exactly the same thing that the ones did before. What we need is a networking of smaller groups, smaller and smaller groups who know one another, who interact with one another, and that is a grateful world. A grateful world is a world of joyful people. Grateful people are joyful people. And joyful people the more and more joyful people there are the more and more we'll have a joyful world we have a network for grateful living and and it has mushroom we, were, we couldn't understand it why it mushroom we have an opportunity for people to light a candle for when they are grateful for something and there have been 15 million candles lit in one decade people are Becoming aware that a grateful world is a happy world. And we all have the opportunity by the simple stop, look, go to transform the world, to make it a happy place. And that is what I hope for us. And if this has contributed a little to making you want to do the same, stop, look, go.
1: We just heard clips featuring, first, a TED Talk from Robert Waldinger drawing lessons from the longest study on happiness. The Majority Report examined the World Happiness Report. Dr. Roger Ray gave us one of his progressive faith sermons on living with gratitude in an imperfect world. Figure One from the University of California had an explainer video to demonstrate that we are built to be kind. Backstory dove into the debate over how to read our founding documents and how they address the pursuit of happiness. And finally, we just heard a TED Talk from David Stendhal Rast on the connection between gratitude and happiness and how we can experience more of both throughout every day of our lives. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you.
0: Hey Jay,
9: uh, this is Nick Collins from Colorado. I just wanted to call a real quick voicemail to recommend you a book I just finished reading. It's called The Most Good You Can Do, and was written by, uh, I guess, the relatively famous moral philosopher, Peter Singer. Uh, In short, it's an exposition of effective altruism, a practice that uh, I guess I could best describe as being the intersection between logic and philanthropy. The way I see it, effective altruism is ethics put into action. Uh, And so a number of examples, Singer argues how one can make the most significantly positive difference with the dollar that they donate. So given your uh, logical and highly rational mental patterns, I thought you'd really enjoy the book. Uh, It's a critical concept that I believe has been missing from the literature on ethics at least from what I've been exposed to uh, and definitely helped shift my perspective both in regards to my theory of change and to algorithm in general. So yeah, that's it. I just, I think you would really enjoy and benefit from checking out the book and um, <laughs> wanted to recommend it.
12: Thanks for all you do. Uh, love and light. Peace. Hi Jay, my name is Jeff from Massachusetts, and I just had three quick comments on um, voting rights in America. So I feel like one thing that a lot of politicians or even, you know, the electorate think is that there's this uh, kind of linear idea about voting. There's like the Democrats on the left, and then there's the center and the independents are the center. And then there's the right, which is the Republicans. And maybe there's the far right and the far left. And you could say maybe, you know, the Green Party is the far left. And then the far right, I don't know if that'd really be the libertarians because they're more like, you know, socially liberal and conservatively and fiscally conservative, but whatever. I feel like they're missing out on the idea that there are a lot of people who are simply apolitical right now. And so they have no idea exactly where they would fall in these categories, but right now they're kind of independent. So this is kind of coming from my own personal, my personal story where I was really apolitical. I was just like, you know, focused on my work, on my science, whatever, research, who cares? And then I heard your show, loved it, got really into it, and I realized like all of the, that I'm what I'm doing would be totally useless without a political system to implement it or to use it for the right reason. So then I got political, and I didn't start from the middle and work my way left. I just started right at the left. I started right from where my friends were, how I how I kind of felt as an individual, and so. I think there might be a lot of people who are like that, and especially people who are more liberal might be more um, frustrated with the political system because they see they see the political system and they learn about it or whatever, and then they see how flawed it is and then they give up. Whereas maybe I mean I'm, I again I'm not going to make any more assumptions. Um, but anyway, that's my first comment is that. There's an assumption that independents are in the middle when really they're all over the spectrum and maybe even more to the left. Don't know if there's anything to support that. Secondly, I think that there should be a national holiday the Monday before voting. It just makes no sense that we have this democracy that we celebrate, but we don't celebrate it. We only celebrate in words. We don't celebrate it in person or in any substantial way other than that. And if anything, we have to we have to work on the day that we vote, that we exercise this incredible right. Why not have a day before, and maybe even the weekend before, where you can do like like you know early voting, that kind of thing, and you can get together and discuss and have like you know celebration of the right to vote. This thought, and it'd probably be a lot better uh, received than mandatory um, voting, because I'm sure you know Republicans or Conservatives would say this is a voting tax or this is like a a voting restriction or something like that. So the last thing is, um, this is coming from a really, uh, probably probably a naive standpoint, is I don't really see the purpose of having private political parties anymore. I think early on, you know, there wasn't as much communication, there wasn't as much information about a candidate, and so political parties were a way of saying, of, of knowing someone in that party, and they get to say, yeah, I support this candidate. It's when endorsements were huge, it made, it, it made or broke a candidate. And I don't think, you know, with the internet, with um, a lot of different social media, a lot of different ways to get out to the public, I don't think we need endorsements from other people, especially these older politicians who aren't, you know, really on board with the, the growing movements of uh, the younger generation and of the more progressive generation. So, um, so three things, right? Independence are not always in the center. Uh, There should be a um, national holiday, the Monday before voting, and the third thing, uh, we should just get rid of political parties, because I don't think we need the system in place. Anyways, um, love your show. Thanks for uh, putting it out there. Have a good one. Bye. Hey,
11: Jay, it's Wade. You know, I, I support the minimum wage increase. In fact, I, I think it should be higher than, than fifteen. Uh, my my issue with the minimum wage has always been that it sucks all the energy out of out of the debates. It takes everything. Uh, for me, the, a much bigger issue, a much bigger threat facing the the American uh, worker is automation. Automation is already here, and it's it's just going to continue. And automation is the only thing that can take your wages from minimum to zero. And I, this worries me. It, it really does. I don't understand how we're going to put millions of people out of work and expect the economy to continue. Even if you have a guaranteed minimum, which I think is uh, the only the only way to uh, you know, basic way anyway to deal with, with with that problem. That man. That still is for the first time in human history that there's really no ability for the for the masses to better themselves in, in terms of financially anyway. Uh, you know, what do we do then? It's almost human nature to strive to, you know, earn more or just be more successful, which is usually a result of a, uh, you know, a higher paying career. So that that's what worries me more than anything. I think the minimum wage is. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's not a worthy debate, but we also need to talk about automation. And I and I truly think that that at this time, the argument of massive deregulation is really is really not not possible anymore. We we can't have that. We have to have some regulation that says for the first time is actually going to say you can't automate this job, even though you can, because it's more important to have millions of people employed than it is lower prices. We have to have an economy, and people have to earn money for that economy to work. And that's the only way I see it. I see it happening. So yeah i mean wages minimum zero automation these are these are all things that need to be that need to be talked we need to be talking about wages in general and all the threats to them not just the minimum wage anyway that's my thoughts on it have a good one
1: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Quick update on our summer fundraiser. Things are still going very well. A quick reminder that my brother and I combined are forming the Best of the Left team doing a climate ride. So we're riding over 300 miles from Bar Harbor, Maine to Boston, Massachusetts over a five-day period. And we set a goal of, I think the exact number was $5,600, so $2,800 each. I have reached my goal, and Sean now is within a measly $150 of his goal. I've been helping him raise money through the show, with your help, of course. And so things are going very well. Uh, Combined, we have a total of 130 donors, and I've set a secondary goal of getting 200 donors. doesn't matter how much you donate. I just love the idea of lots of people chipping in. Even if it's five bucks, chip in five bucks. And so the most recent donors who have chipped in, thanks, of course, to Sachivan, Pat, Adam, Robin, Elaine, Amy, Laura, Andrew, Shane, Stephanie, Benjamin, and three anonymous donors. So We are getting down to the wire here. We have less than two weeks to go, and I think it's clear we are going to hit our uh, fundraising total in terms of dollars. I would love for just 70 more people to chip in any amount of money just to get your name on the board. I would love to see that nice round 200 number uh, in terms of number of donors and Remember that uh, this is all part of our summer fundraiser, so if you're interested in getting a free t-shirt or hoodie and you want to sign up as a member of the show at the same time as you contribute to the Climate Ride, uh, this month is the last time that these shirts are going to be available. Uh, I'm giving away these uh, apparel items, which are fantastic. They're made, believe it or not, of recycled plastic bottles, and yet they are some of the softest, most durable clothes I've ever owned, and uh, so that can be yours, but they're not available at any time other than during this fundraiser, so clock is ticking on that offer. For all the details, go to bestoftheleft.com and click on the big summer fundraiser banner. You can't miss it. Now today, the other thing I'm going to talk to you about is uh, what's going on in my life. It, it, it would feel very odd, honestly, to talk about anything else, um, because the fact of it is that death is hanging over my family right now, which is a completely new experience for me, and so I thought that not only uh, were we about due for a happier, more upbeat kind of episode, but honestly, I, I just needed it for myself. And uh, so I've definitely been thinking a bit about how to be grateful and, and happy in, in this time, and I'm certainly grateful that this is a new experience for me. I'm, I'm 33 years old, and amazingly, no one has uh, died who, who I've been uh, related to or very close to since I was five years old. My, my last uh, living grandparent died when I was five years old. And I have no memory of it at all. So my whole life, things have just been this like sort of blessed (laughs) existence where luckily no one has passed away. And it is seeming very much like that is going to change soon. And so on one hand, I'm very grateful that it hasn't happened up until this point. Uh, At the same time, I, I feel a bit like an adult who never got chicken pox when they were a kid. And it's like great to have never gone through that. But at the same time, you fear that it may be worse for not having ever inoculated yourself against it. And so it may hit you harder uh, in your adult years. And so I'm, I'm, you know, trying to keep a good frame of mind on the whole thing and, and sort of recognize how lucky I've been up to this point. And and you know, and and grateful to, in a strange way, to finally have this experience. It's it's part of human existence. It's part of the human experience. Uh, it's something that everyone has to deal with. I've been lucky in, in in avoiding it up to this point, but it seems either time or or overdue uh, for for this sort of thing. And uh, and and then of course, I'm incredibly grateful. That I have the job I do. Um, I, I've, I've had a couple of interactions with listeners recently who asked uh, what I do as a day job. And so I realize I, I don't talk about it. it. It doesn't come up. But for those of you who don't know, this is my job. The, this show is my full-time job. So, you know, when I ask for donations and things like that, it's not just like extra fun pocket chains. It's like this is how uh, I, I make a living. Which is fantastic, and and, uh, it's something I'm incredibly lucky to be able to do. And on top of that, it means that I'm not home right now. I'm actually able to be traveling and working so that I can be uh, at the home of the person who looks like they're about to pass away. So. Beyond that, I I honestly can't say I have any uh, thoughtful insights or words of wisdom uh, to share on this topic. I just sort of wanted to uh, let you know what's going on. Uh, I I can feel the uh, emails of concern uh, coming in already, and uh, I appreciate any sentiments like that. Trust me, if I need to take time off I will take time off. I, I, I'm aware that uh, I'm allowed to do that, so that that may happen. Just be forewarned, you know. If if you see some reruns coming out, it may very well be uh, for this reason. But I hope that today's episode and, and the focus on happiness has done you some good, as it has done for me. And if you want to uh, chime in, share your thoughts, uh, maybe talk about what you have been feeling grateful about recently. Uh, Maybe that would be a good uh, next conversation for the voicemail section. The number again, of course, 202-999-3991. And that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday thanks entirely to the members and donor to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a and shame how
2: we get so trained we can't see past our sad story and wonder what we're missing We can't see past love and sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past